0: If I wanted to convey to you that something was just absolutely certain, something was sure, you could trust it, I wanted to tell you that something was, was reliable and that you could have confidence in it, I might say that you can take it to the bank. Because banks are totally trustworthy. We're, like nothing would ever happen to a bank. There'd never be any issues, no problems whatsoever. I I find it ironic that the phrase that we would use in this culture to even talk about how something is certain is now uncertain. And and I think that just serves as a perfect example and illustration of, of how we all feel right now. That the world that we live in right now is very uncertain. The things are really shaky, and it's covering really almost everything in our world right now. I mean, any facet of life, any area of thought, When you're thinking about your business and your life and your kids and morality and the direction of the church and everything that's going, you're just going, what is going on? I don't think a week goes by now where I don't hear and you probably don't hear, what in the world is going on? The world has lost its minds. The world is absolutely crazy. What is this going to mean for the next year, the next two years, the next five years, ten years? What's this going to mean for my kids if things keep going in this direction? And we see the direction. The direction is bad. The direction is not just uncertain, it's also bad. It's going in the, in the wrong direction. The moral decay is rampant. The dark clouds of culture are upon us. And we're sitting here saying, man, this is crazy. This is wild. And everything just feels a little, like all the institutions, all the things that we used to trust and rely on, now all of a sudden we're saying, can, can we trust that that will be there tomorrow? Can we trust that it will look like this in the next few months? We're just not sure. We're just not sure and everybody generally feels this i think right now feel unstable like we're on shaky ground like the world is in some sense falling apart beneath us crumbling beneath our feet the world that we knew even if this hasn't hit you in your life in your business in your home it hasn't crossed your threshold of your door i'm sure even if you haven't felt the big one Happen to you, you you feel the tremors, like you feel the foreshocks that are coming, and you're just wondering, when is it all coming crumbling down? When's it gonna happen? It just feels like that. And we're all just wondering, what do we do? Do we do we run? Do we get out of here? Do we do we run out of the house? Do we hide in the doorway? Do we just lay in bed hoping it'll pass? Like, what's our response to this? Like, like, how are we supposed to respond? And and I think the Bible and God in particular cares how we respond in the midst of things that are changing, when things feel uncertain. He he wants us to respond rightly. And what he doesn't want from us as believers is for us to be unstable, for us to be unsettled, for us to be responding with fear and anxiety and worry and an undue amount of concern that's causing us to be trepidatious, that's causing us to become weary and discouraged and not fulfill our mission, It's causing us to not look ahead and say with hope that God is good. There are so many things that we could respond that are bad right now. God does not want us to be unstable in the midst of all this instability. He wants us to maintain our faith and to do what's right. The question, I think, comes to us, well, we are living in some interesting times. How do we do that? How do we gain that Firm footing on shaky ground in the midst of an unstable and crazy world. Firm footing on solid ground. How do we do that? How do we have our feet planted on firm ground in the midst of the shaky world? And that's what I hope our text today is going to give us an answer to. It's going to point us to some solution to this problem. And so if you would turn with me to James chapter 1, that's the text we're going to be in today. James chapter 1, just looking at two verses. And as you look to James and you it in your Bibles and your devices, let me just give you a little bit reminder of the book of James and what's going on. This is James writing the half-brother of Jesus. That's probably what he's most well-known for because it's kind of a big deal to be related to Jesus, I guess. But I think more so in the early church, James is known for being the primary central head elder and pastor in the church of Jerusalem. We see this in Acts chapter 15 when there's a dispute amongst the Gentiles and the Jews on how God is dealing with them and responding and what they have to do, you see Peter, the head apostle, and you see Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, come together into Jerusalem and they convene with James, who is presiding over the church in Jerusalem where everything is happening. James is a man that's full of wisdom and insight, and he's a leader, and he's there. And James, in the very first chapter of this book, the very first verse, he says he's writing to people who are in the dispersion, is how it's phrased in your ESV, in the dispersion. What's that? Well, what's going on is persecution has struck the church in Jerusalem. The Christians in Jerusalem are now being persecuted. And so what has happened is they have dispersed into other regions. They have fled. They have gone into different places. And so we've got a bunch of people that James is writing to in this first chapter of James chapter 1 who are living in a real sense uncertain times you have to think they're probably Jews for the most part, and now they're even outcasts amongst the Jews because they're following this Messiah, Jesus, who is supposed to be their Messiah, and the Jews are rejecting them, and so they're outcasts amongst their own people. They're not in their hometown. They're apart, and people are persecuting, going after them. They probably don't have a place to live. They might be poor. They don't know where their meals are coming from, and people are actually actively messing with their lives. They don't know what church looks like anymore. This is all new. This is all strange. The world they live in is full of chaos. That's who he's writing to. And that's why in the first chapter of James, he talks about trials right off the bat. He says, I know you in the dispersion, you need some teaching, some help in terms of thinking about how you deal with trials in your life because you're in the midst of them. You're in unstable ground and shaky world. You're not sure how things are going to go. You don't have the money or the success or the influence that you once had. You don't have the community around you. You don't have the comforts. You don't have the assurance and the security that you once had. And so let me help you think through trials. And he says, this is is God-ordained. This is helpful for your faith. This is going to be good. You want to persevere, and you don't want to lose your faith. You want to maintain this test. You want to go through this well. This is good. He gives some teaching, correction, and direction. First chapter, James. Our passage looks at the very end of this first chapter. We're talking about trials, temptations. And this section, he happens to speak about what I consider to be something that that they need. They need some encouragement after this whole long discourse on trials and temptations and the testing of their faith and being poor and needy. What does it look like? Okay, well, let's encourage them now. But I love James because he's not a real subtle guy. He's real direct, right to the point, in your face. And he wants to give them... Something to think about as he closes out this section. Something that's going to really set their minds on the right thing to help them get through these uncertain times. He's going to direct their mind to it. And we want to get our minds directed to that as well. So let's look at this text from James chapter 1, starting in verse 16. It says, do not be deceived. Strong, like I said, out the gate. Do not be deceived. There's some temptation or some ability to be deceived. My beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, from God, from His throne room, from heaven itself, coming down from the Father of lights. This is a title used for God. It's not talking about just general lights or the glory of God. He's talking about particular lights, the lights of the heavens, the sun, the moon, the stars. That's what he's referring to. He said, coming down from Him, the Father who created those lights, with whom there is no, in him, talking about God now, variation or shadow due to change. Now, if I were wanting to encourage a church and say, okay, I know it's been hard. I know that you're weary. I know that things are looking precarious right now. I'm going to encourage you by saying, keep going. You've got this. Don't give up. Be strong. But I love James because out the gate, he says, you know what you need? Be careful be warned. Don't be deceived. James is saying in the midst of trials, there is a temptation in us to become deceived in something. And he's wanting to warn us against that deception that can take place. He's wanting to warn us and say, you need to be careful because in the midst of this, you might become deceived. Now, what kind of deception is he talking about? Is he talking about external deception that comes from the enemy? Is he talking about external deception that comes from false teachers creeping into the church and teaching heresy? Is he talking about the type of deception that's coming from worldly thinking and connecting with the world? Is that what he's talking about? Well, he talks about those things in other places in this book, but I think that this section, he's really talking about an internal type of deception, a deception that arises within our own hearts and our own thinking without the need of all these external influences, something that is so natural in our sinful inclination in our flesh that we need to be warned of it just in and of ourselves, to be warned to not be deceived. So what is the nature of this deception? What's the deception that he's warning us against? The deception that he knows because of his biblical knowledge and his view of the Old Testament and an understanding and the wisdom given to him from God, he knows that in the midst of trials, in the midst of shaky times, instability, we have the temptation and the propensity to begin to think different thoughts about God that are not true about God. We begin to be deceived in our view of God, to think of him differently, to attribute things to him that he has not done, and to fail to attribute things to him that he has done, to let his character and his person and his nature shift in our view because of what's going on. Because of the circumstance. Because when things are hard, it's easy for us to say, God, where are you? Where'd you go? And why aren't you doing what I think you should be doing? We have that temptation. So the type of corrective that we need in this time, when things in our own lives feel unstable and shaky and unsure, is to be warned as well, to be corrected as well, not to let our thinking shift about God. I want you to put it down this way for our first point. We need to see God accurately despite changing circumstances. We need to be careful to make sure that we keep God in the right perspective regardless of what's going on around us. That we see him accurately, biblically, theologically accurately despite all the change, despite all the chaos, despite all the unsure thinking that is going on in our minds about this world. I said, I think James is thinking back to biblical history to make this point. And and I just want to make that point even stronger for you here, that I think James is going back and thinking about the nation of Israel and their propensity when things change to then have that change their view of God. So just think about this with me for just a moment. Israel, Jacob and his sons are in Israel and there is in the land and there is a famine that takes place. And God is going to show his power and his faithfulness and his care and his provision for them by rescuing them from that famine, by raising up Joseph in Pharaoh's house and providing for them. They are saved out of their potential destruction because of this hard circumstance, and God provides for them, cares for them, sustains them through Joseph, and it says that they are given the choicest of lands in Egypt, the area of Goshen, and they're able to be fruitful and multiply, and they grow like crazy. God has shown, really for the first time, not just to an individual like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but to a people, the people, the tribes, the sons of Jacob, that he is going to be faithful to his promise. But then, as they flourish, it says that there is a Pharaoh that doesn't know Joseph, Joseph, and so the uh, circumstance changes. Now they become slaves in a foreign land, in Egypt, and they're called to do manual labor and to suffer and to struggle at that time. Circumstances have changed. So God, in his kindness and in his love, he raises up Moses and through the hand of Moses and by the power of God, puts to shame the gods of Egypt and the Pharaoh by performing signs and miracles and wonders. And if you think about these things that are going on, they're pretty insane. Hailstones and boils and frogs and locusts and gnats and darkness. And then this whole time, they're thinking, God is is doing this for us. He is showing his power, his glory, his greatness, his might, his love for us, his protection, his provision. Wow, what an amazing God. Even seeing specific areas where the firstborn die in Egypt, but not in Israel because he makes provision, a blood sacrifice. Oh, well, you know what? There is darkness over the whole land, but not in Goshen not in Goshen, the light still shone there. God cares for us. And they see that. But then as the story even progresses, as the Israelites are now brought out, let go from Egypt and led into the wilderness with, with Moses, they stand on the edge of the sea and all of a sudden Pharaoh's armies come behind him. And what happens right away in their own thinking? God, where did you go? Did you change who you are? They begin to say things like, why did you bring us here to die, Moses? We could have died back in Egypt. This circumstance is different. God could handle this, but he can't handle that. It's different. And then what does God do? He shows his covenant faithfulness to his people, and he opens up the sea, and they walk through on dry land, and he leads them by a pillar of cloud and smoke, and you think, now, at some point, now the people get it. God is powerful. He's amazing. He's good. He cares for them. He provides for them, and they get into the wilderness, and they're thinking, you know, that was different. There was a lot of water then, and there's no water here in the desert now. We need something to drink. God can't do it. God must be different. God must have changed his way. He can't provide for us. Why are we out here to die? God provides water from a, from a rock, a miraculous way. He's going to provide for him. He's going to be faithful to his promises. He's going to do it. But they just change their mind about him. And then they're like, okay, you can provide water, but you can't feed us out here. There's no food. There's no sheep. There's no plants. And God's like, I, I can do it. We rain down this manna from heaven. That's not good enough. I want meat. Okay, we can go on and on and on. And in a summary in Psalm 78, you have this really great summary of all of these different provisions of God. And then these multiple lines that are given about what is the issue with Israel. And here's a great one in Psalm 7811 says this. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. They forgot his works and the wonders that he showed them. Now, if you're like me, I get to that and I read that and I say, how is that even possible? How, how is it possible? This is not a different generation. This is not a different people. These are the same exact people that watched the plagues, that saw the rivers turn to blood, that saw the frogs hopping around on the bed, that saw the pillar of fire and smoke, that saw the manna from heaven, how can they forget all that? Well, I don't think what's being said is that they, like, I was like, oh yeah, I forgot about that. I didn't remember that happened. That was what's pillar of fire and smoke. I don't, I don't remember that. I don't think that's what's being said. It's that they put it out of their minds because they were focused on something else. It's that in the midst of the changing circumstances, they, those circumstances became so overwhelming that just in that moment, they'd forgotten. They, they'd misplaced their thinking about God and they'd forgotten who He was and what He has done. This is our pattern as well, just like it is Israel's pattern. God has been so faithful, He's been so kind. He shows His power and His love, and His care for us, time in, time out, over and over again. And yet, when things start to change in our world just a little bit, our health starts to go down, our business has a challenge, our finances take a dip, all of a sudden the schools are looking hard, or what am I going to do with my kids here? Every, oh, now, now I'm not sure, God, that you are good like you say you are, like you're going to do what you say you're going to do. Uh, one of the things that I like to do with my kids is uh, I let them drive my car. And I don't mean, like, around Aliso. I mean, when I pull out of my garage because I want to do something in the garage, I, I let them kind of move the car out for me. And when I say that, I mean, I sit in the driver's seat. I have the keys. I turn the car on. I put it in gear. I have my foot on the pedals. They sit on my lap, and all they do is control the steering wheel. And and they love it because they feel fully autonomous. They think that this is, like, this is the best thing. Dad's giving us so much freedom. And, and so they go out, and they turn the wheel like crazy, and they always oversteer. And... Um, and I'm there the whole time because I, they inevitably will almost run into something. I mean, it's the neighbor's trash cans, a car parked on the side of the road, you know, a ball runs out and I have to slow down. I have to be there to help them. And so time and time again, they know that dad is really in control. They think they are, but they know dad's in control. I'm there with my hands right below the steering wheel just in case something happens. And every time we've ever done this, it's gone great. Like, there's never been an accident. We've never killed anybody. Um, it's been great, and they like it, and they like to do it, but there's, there's this thing that happens, like, every time when their circumstance changes, and for them, in the moment, something becomes more fearful to them, they're concerned, even though we've done this a million times, they're concerned, a car starts coming down towards us, as soon as that car starts coming down, everything changes in their mind, they're not having fun anymore, they're not just playing with the wheels, they're like, dad, you see the car, I'm like, yeah, I see the car, Okay, it's coming, um, you should slow down. I'm like, I it's, uh, it'll be all right. Uh, I'll slow down when it's time to slow down. Okay, Dad, uh, here, I'm gonna go over to the side. No, it's fine, just, just stay right here. No, Dad, it's coming, it's coming fast. You see it, it's getting closer. It's getting closer, Dad. And I'm like, it's gonna be fine. They're like, no, Dad, 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 take the, Daddy, take the wheel. They're like, they're, they throw their hands up and like, okay, like, take it, I don't know what to do. So I take the wheel and I safely, move over so the car can drive by. And you know what my kids don't say to me when that happens? They don't look at me and say, wow, dad, thank you so much. You're such a good driver, I knew I could trust you. You're so faithful to protect us and keep us safe. My rascal little kids look at me and they say, dad, what is wrong with you? Did you not see that car? Were you gonna let that hit us? Mom would have killed you. (laughs) It's amazing how when their circumstance changes and they become fearful, their immediate response is to turn on me, the one that's taking care of them, to, to now reflect on my character and my ability in not taking care of them because they're fearful and they're nervous. You see, this is what we do. When things start to change around us, we don't realize we're even doing it most of the time. Things change around us. Now we're concerned. We're worried. We're anxious. We're tense. We're bound up because things seem like they're too much for God to handle. And we begin subtly, even in our own hearts, without saying it verbally, thinking God can't deal with it, that he's not there, that he's not who he said he was. And we begin to shift our thinking just subtly over time God must not be powerful because he's not intervening. God must not be all-knowing because if he knew, wouldn't he do something? God must not be loving or kind to me because if he was, wouldn't he step in? I would step in. Wouldn't he step in? We begin to slowly shift our thinking, thinking God has forsaken us in some way, or he's not who he says he is, and this is is something that we can become deceived in in our own hearts. And we need to be careful as a church, as believers, to not let this happen. To only see God as he presents himself and not let our circumstances affect our view of him. Our view of God must never shift no matter what's going on. No matter what the realities around us make make us think about God, we need to be steadfast and sure and fixed on God is who he says he is. Why does this happen, though? Why does it happen that when our circumstances change, we, we begin to think different thoughts about God? Well, I, I, I'll give you what I think is going on. Our focus changes. Instead of keeping our eyes on God, all of a sudden, all we're doing is we're putting our head down and we are locked into the problem, into the change, into the shaky world, into how things are falling apart. And we're scrolling through Twitter and our Instagram feeds and social media and we're getting our news feeds and watching the news 24 hours a day and we're hearing about it and talking about it with our friends and coworkers and all we're doing is we're just looking down at the problem. Here's what the problem is. Here's what the problem is. Here's what the problem is. And we're, we're so locked in that we just never take a breath to look up. We're so focused on the issues. And I'm not saying that we should be oblivious to the issues. Don't, don't misinterpret me. We should be aware... We should be lights in the midst of the darkness. We should decry the evils that are going on in the world, but not to the extent where we're so locked in that we begin to shift our view of God in them because we're overly concerned and anxious and worried about them. Reminds me of Peter going out to walk on the water to meet Jesus. He sees Jesus, he gets a moment of boldness and courage and strength, and he says, Jesus, command me to come out to you, and Jesus does, and Peter steps out of the boat, and it says that Peter got out of the boat and was walking in the water. He was, he was actually walking on the water, and he was coming to Jesus. And then it says, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and he began to sink. But what's the issue here is that all of a sudden, Peter's focus immediately goes on the problem, the wind causing turbulent waves and White peaks on the water, and it just being too chaotic out there, and it begins to shift his perspective to fear, to anxiety, to worry, and that's when he loses it. When he takes his eyes off of God and it's on the problem. It, I worked at a, um, a high ropes course at a Christian camp, big, tall elements, all kinds of stuff, and we had this one element called the, uh, the leap of faith, and it was a telephone pole, just a telephone pole put in the ground. 25 feet tall, something like that, and uh, there's staples on the side of it that people would use to climb up. Pretty easy to get up, actually, and you would get all the way to the top, and then you would stand on the top of a telephone pole about this big, and you would leap off to a trapeze that was about six feet away. That was the thing. It's actually not that hard, uh, but people were afraid. And um, there is this phenomenon that happened on the Leap of Faith, which it's pretty easy to get up there, but as soon as you got up there and you put both of your feet on that telephone pole, if you maintained this position where you looked down and stared at your feet, instead of standing up straight and looking at that trapeze, that pole would just wobble because you were just not standing in the right position. Your body wasn't aligned. And so everybody would just get up to the top of that thing and the, the, the pole would just start shaking. And so I'm always at the bottom. I got them to up. I'm making sure they're fine and I'm encouraging them as they go up. And every time it's like, hey stop looking down, look up, focus up there, you'll be fine." When they did, they'd get the ability to jump, but, uh, but so many people, they just never, they couldn't do it, they couldn't keep their eyes off the problem. And it was so funny because the, uh, the kids all on the line, of course, would be yelling the same thing, come on, scaredy cat, just look up and jump. And then they'd go two seconds later and I'd be like, look up, you're going to be fine. It's not what we do. I mean, we know. We know we should keep our eyes on God. And yet, it's so tempting for us just to get locked in, laser focused on the problems all the time. In, in the midst of knowing what's going on in this world, we need to make sure that we're not being pulled to the side to think of God differently because we're focused in on the problems. Instead, our focus needs to be primarily on God and who he is. That's the deception that we're prone to is in the midst of all the chaos to focus too much on the chaos and not enough on God. And when we don't focus enough on God, we're pulled into thinking differently about him. And we must not do that. We need to be firm in our understanding of who God is. And and James, knowing this for these people, doesn't leave it there. He doesn't say, just know who God is. He wants us to, to get a few specific things about God that would be very, very helpful for people going through the midst of trials in a shaking, uncertain world, well, what particularly about God should we know, should we remember? What's going to be the most helpful thing for us in the midst of all the chaos? Well, he says it, verse 17. You need to think about God, don't be deceived. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. What what should you think about? What should you focus your mind on? The fact that God is good and every aspect of good you have in your life every good gift you have that you enjoy has been given to you from God. That's what he wants your minds on. That's what we need to have our minds on. Not on the bad, not on the crazy, but on God and on his faithful and abundant provision. So let's put it this way for number two. Focus on God's abundant goodness. We need to focus on God's abundant goodness, not on the the problems, but on the fact that he is good to us, that by his nature, he is a good God, and he is the one who distributes all good things to all people. You think about every gift, every gift. That's what he says, every gift. Not some, not most, every gift. I think we as a generation are probably the worst generation at seeing every good gift from God. I I, I think we are, have this strong propensity inside of ourselves to think that we are the ones generating good in our lives. More than any other generation. I mean, we we just rarely think about all the good things we have and attribute them to God. We often attribute them to ourselves. We say, you know what, that house that I have, I got that because I've been working for 30 years, I've been working hard. That's true. Still from God. That, that job you have, that career you built, the business you've built. It's because I put a lot of energy and effort. Sure, that's true, but you've got to realize that it's still a gift from God. He's still in control, and he's still the provider of every good gift. Well, my health, it's because I work out, and I do this, and I eat healthy. Well, still from God. Every aspect of our lives is from God. And we, we've just gotten to the point as a society where we just don't believe this anymore, where we just assign ourselves the praise because of the things, the stuff, the relationships that we have in our life. And it becomes this prideful arrogance in our own heart where we say, you know what, I, it's because I make wise decisions compared to my neighbor. It's because I'm smarter. I've made better investments. I, I picked a good church. I, I, I committed to do this. And I'm saying all those things are good. Don't stop doing those things. But you just got to recognize that this is still everything you have is freely given to us by God. That's how this is say, said very clearly in, in Scripture. And I think one of the reasons why this is creeping into the church so strongly, for one, is because we're disconnected from everything. We don't, we don't see God supplying the rain to the field to grow the grass, to feed the cows where we get our meat from. I mean, we're just so disconnected. We, we get, I get a box of meat on my door and just think, oh, I'm good I bought that. Not realizing that everything, everything that we have and that we enjoy comes from God. But another reason is because there's so much of a movement of this in the culture to say that every good thing in your life, you can bring about in your life. And you should. It's this new agey law of attraction kind of mentality where they say, you know what you should do? You should get a vision board. You should cut out pictures of the things you want to see and have in your life. And then you should, you should bring those about in your life by giving so much of your energy and focus on them that you're going to generate them in your life. And all the stuff that you get that's good is actually because of you and your focus and your positive thinking about those things. That's how it works. Completely isolating and separating God from the equation whatsoever. And this just creeps into the church and we begin to believe that this is how it works. That, yep, I worked hard this week. I, you know, I took my wife out on a date where a relationship's good. Everything is because of me. Because I've been bringing it about. It's not true. It's not biblically true. That's not what the Bible says. Let me tell you a few... Passages, just to clarify in our minds how this works. This one's probably the best. Acts seventeen twenty-five, Acts seventeen twenty-five. Nor is God served by human hands, as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. The reason why you are alive here and can do anything that you do. The reason why you have breath in your lungs and you exist as a person is because God has decided for you to be born, and he has given you life. He has given you health. He has given you the ability to be here to listen to a sermon. It is from God. Your life and your health and your general existence on this world is a gift from God, and he gives it freely. He gives it to not just his children, but others as well. He gives it to all mankind. You might be thinking, okay, yeah, but I understand that, but then I've worked really hard. Well, you, you realize that the circumstance that you live in is unique? The circumstance that you live in is unique, that the peace and general prosperity that we live under, the economic growth and success, the freedom that we live in, you realize that that's kind of a really necessary prerequisite for you to do well in your business and in your life and with your stuff. You realize that God says he gives that too. Deuteronomy 30 is clear that prosperity comes from the hand of God and that he directs kings like water in his hands, that he has set up the prosperity and the peace and the freedom and the nation and the rulers for human flourishing, that's from him. That's a gift from him. So even if you can say, I've worked hard, but you can say, well, the circumstance that allowed me to even do this is from God. But God's even more clear than that, saying it's everything, it's everything. It's everything. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 9 with me briefly. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 8. We we have the tendency to think, yeah, but you know the stuff that I've worked so hard for and bought and purchased and labored over, that stuff, that's me, right? Like I, I own that. That's my stuff. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 8 says, "And God is able. God is able. Not you are able, God is able. He is the one that has power over all this stuff. He is able to make all grace abound to you. Everything all grace, so that having all sufficiency, everything that you would need in all things, in every absolute way, at all times, you may abound in every good work. God has graciously, out of the provision of his hands, supplied you with everything you need in your life from him so that you can do his work, so that you can be abundant in good works. He's given this to you freely. says in verse 9, as it is written, He has distributed freely his common grace to all people. He has given to the poor, even those who can't say that it's because of them. He gives to them too. He's going to continue to give to them because he gets a righteous praise back from them when they recognize it's not me that's doing it. It's you and you alone, God, because I can't do anything of my own power and strength. Verse 10 says, he who supplies seed for the sower, this is God talking about, he's the one that supplies seed to the sower, and bread for food, and will supply and multiply your seed for sowing, and increase the harvest of your righteousness. And you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Every aspect of God's provision, from seed to sower, to bread, to provision, is all given from him. And he is given that for us for a purpose, to do something with it. And we need to remember his provision. This even goes down to the small, little, tiny things in our lives. It's not just the big stuff. It's not just the governments and the kings and the rulers and the economy. It's your individual care for your life. God cares for for the sparrows that are worth what it says, five sparrows are worth two pennies. That's like nothing. Like, that's no money at all. And yet he cares for them. How much more does he care for you? He cares for these little insignificant things. He cares for you. And then he says, he he even numbers the hairs on your head. Down to the the minutia in your life. The details. And trust me, the amount of hair my wife loses, I think, does God really care about each one of those hairs that she's losing? Because that's a lot. You know, I don't know, clogging up the drains. He cares for us in such deep ways. It's every good gift in your life. Every good gift. You know what I think would be wise for you to do as a means of putting your focus on God's abundant goodness is for you to do a little inventory this week in prayer with you and God on all the good things in your life. I decided I was going to do this on Monday because I'm prepping for the sermon. I thought, you know, I'm going to go out and I'm going to go pray and I'm just going to think and pray about the things that God has given to me that are good, that I could just say clearly are good. I'm not going to worry about the bad stuff. I'm not going to worry about the problems. I'm not going to make some crazy petition or request. I'm just going to thank him for the good things. And I told my wife, I'm going to go out for a short walk. That's what I said. Well, 30 minutes later, I realized that I, I needed to be out a little longer. So I texted her and I said, I'm going to be out here for a while. I don't know how far I went. I, I feel like I walked to Laguna Beach. But I was out for two and a half hours and I just decided, you know what? I, I can't be out here all day. I got to come home. The amount of things when you spend your time focusing on all the good that God has given your life, I think you will be surprised. I think you will be shocked, and you will have an overflowing, abundant amount of things to thank God for. You might start with the big stuff on your list. You might say, God, I'm thankful for my relationships with my family, for my spouse, for my kids, for my parents, for my mom. You might think of your house and your provisions and your stuff and your job and your income and how God has changed your life. You might think of decisions that God's allowed you to make to be successful and this and that. You might start thinking about that stuff. But I think as you go out, you start even caring about the little things. Like you you start just like saying crazy stuff. You're like, God, thank you for Costco. Like I love Costco, you know, samples. Like it's just, it's so good. And I'm like, it's so small, but every good and perfect gift is coming from God. And it's like we, we are so fixated on all the bad stuff, on all the things going wrong in the world. But there's so many good gifts from God's hand to us. And when you do that, when you're taking inventory of your life, your mind should and will most definitely go to the perfect gift that James is describing here, which is your salvation. Every good and every perfect gift. What's the perfect gift? The perfect gift is what it says in verse 18, that of his own will, he brought you forth by the word of truth, that you are regenerated, reborn, that you are saved. All of us at least can point to this if we are believers in Christ and say, if there's an example of God's goodness and faithfulness and care for us in our lives, it's that he has saved us. He's redeemed us, that he's rescued us from the penalty of death due to our sin. He's levied that on Christ and now we can have a relationship with him. If if anything, go out and just think about that. Think of how good that is. Get your eyes up onto that this week. Every good, every perfect gift is from God and he wants us to think about this, about God's goodness and to be thankful for it. There's one more thing that James wants to get our mind on about God though. He knows that we're going to be deceived to think something's wrong with God and he's saying, no, nothing's wrong. Remember that he's good. Look back and look forward at God's goodness. But, also remember this. It says in the second part of verse 17, every good and perfect gift is from above. It says, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. But what is he saying here? He's saying that God is the creator of the sun and the moon and the stars. That's what he's saying, the Father of lights. The only time in the New Testament, the only time in the Bible that this is used, this phrase. It's a unique phrase. And you're thinking, well, why does he bring this up? Why is he saying God is the creator of the Heavens and the earth, the planets, the sun and the moon. Why does that matter? Because back in these times, if you wanted to draw someone's attention to that which was stable and constant in your lives, this was the most stable thing you could point them to. The most stable thing that they could think of was the fact that the sun would rise and set every single day. That the moon would come up and do its thing every single night. That the stars would go across their course in the sky and they wouldn't shift and they wouldn't change. So much so that the ancients built their whole lives really off of the path of the sun and the moon and the stars. Their calendars were based off of this. Their their economy was based off of this. Their, their, Their plowing and their sowing and their reaping and harvesting was based off of this. Even their worship was based off of the movement of the stars because they were so steady, so consistent, so stable. So he's drawing our attention to say, Think of the thing in this world that is the most stable thing you can think of. Now, we might say, well, I think the second law of thermodynamics or something is more stable or, you know, an atomic clock is more stable than those things. But whatever it is, he's saying, think of the most constant thing in your life. And then he's saying, God, God created that. God is above that. God supersedes that in his constancy. That he, he is more stable, more unmoved, more unchanging than those things. And if that's not clear enough, then he says, just to clarify, with whom this God who created these things and stands over them, there's no variation or shadow due to change. The the sun, when it makes its path across the sky that you think is the most trustworthy thing in this world, when it goes across the sky in summer, it casts a shorter shadow than it does in winter. There's a shadow of change even in that constant thing. When the moon comes up, sometimes it's full and sometimes it's not. It wanes and it waxes and there's variation in the celestial bodies that happens but not in God who doesn't change. God does not change like anything else we have in this world. There is no example, no analogy, no description that I could give or anybody could give to point to the fact that God is unique in his unchangeableness. Nothing else is like him in the fact that he doesn't change. This is the closest thing we have, and all James can say is he's bigger and he doesn't change at all. There is no variation in him. No shifting, no change, no movement, completely stable. So yes, the sun, the moon, and stars, they're constant in comparison to everything else, but in comparison to those things, God stands far above, far above in his stability. There is no change in God whatsoever. So I think we should put it this way for a third point. If we need to find stability in this world, what do we look to? Well, we need to find stability in an unchanging God. We need to find our stability in an unchanging God. When everything around us feels shaky and feels unstable, we've got to lock on to the reality that God is stable, that he is unchanging, unmovable. The theological point called immutability, the immutability of God. He's immutable. He is not subject to change. He does not change. He cannot change. Do you realize how unique of a thing this is about our God? God. This is, this is so incredibly unique, and it affects really every aspect of his attributes. But this is, this is completely unique, and it should be comforting to us. We just don't think about it. It should be something that brings us solace and comfort and peace in our lives, and we think our God doesn't ever shift. He doesn't ever move. Even, even back in biblical times, the, the pagan cultures, the, the false you know, religions that worship demons and idols and, and false gods The the, the whole idea of their gods was that they were capricious, that they fluctuated day to day, that you never knew what you were going to get one day from the other with your gods. You might offer a sacrifice or an offering to a god, and they would be pleased with you, and things would go well. At least that's how you would see it. And the next day, they would offer, and you would be in trouble you would be sick, you would be hurting. And so they spent all their time trying to figure out how do we appease and please these gods that are always constantly changing? One day, maybe they're for us, the next, they consume us. How do we deal with this? And in the midst of all of that, you've got this passage in Malachi 3.6 that's God coming out there and saying, oh, me, God of Israel, what am I like? He says, for I, the Lord, do not change. I don't change. Well, why does that matter? Well, he says, therefore you Oh, children of Jacob, you're not consumed. What he's saying is, because I don't change, when I say that I'm gonna be faithful to my covenant promise to you, it's locked in. There's nothing, nothing that's gonna thwart that plan. When I say I love you and I hold you in the palm of my hand, nothing can take you out of it because I can't be moved. I'm not gonna change my mind. I'm not going to change my character. I'm not going to change anything that I think or that I have said. I'm just not going to. And what a comfort that should be to Israel and to us as we think about the fact that means that God is faithful forever to his promises. So what he says for us, we can trust it, rely on it. There is no modern religion that can claim this about God. Even in in Islam, they say Allah... Yes, he's very powerful, but he's not unchangeable. He actually can change. He can change his mind. Because if we say he can't change his mind, that limits his power. I don't think it's true, obviously. But they say that's true. So if you were to walk up to a Muslim and say, you know what, does Allah, can he change his mind? They say, yes. Can he lie? Yeah, sure, he can lie. He could say something that's not true. He has the power to do so. Can Allah Deny himself, they might get stuck on that one, but they would arguably have to say he can do anything. Say, well, what about Allah's mercy? They say, well, Allah at some point didn't have mercy and then he did have mercy, which means the fundamental aspect of his mercy changed over time, which means he changed. He grew in mercy. He expanded in mercy, not our God. There, there, There is nothing about our God where we could ever say he shifted, he changed, he added anything to himself. He varied in any way, shape or form and the Bible is very clear about this. 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. We should look at that and say, thank you, God, that you cannot cease being God, that there is something that you cannot do. Here's something you can't do, God. You can't deny yourself. You can't cease being God because you're unchanging in your existence and your deity because of that, we gain some comfort. We know that he will always be there. He will always exist. He always will be the same yesterday, today, and forever. He will be. And we take comfort, like Titus 1.2 says, God, who never lies. We know that God cannot lie, which means what he puts forth in his word, what he says to us clearly is sure, and we can have confidence in it. And we can rely on that because he never changes. He is truth, and he's never going to lie. So we trust it, even when things around us make us question him and his ability and who he is. We know it's the same as it has always been and as it will always be. I mean, think about the the Mormons who try to take our God and make a representation of him. They, in the basis of their doctrine of God, their theology proper, say that God by nature has changed that he was once a man and became God. And so he wasn't God always. He actually changed, developed, grew, and became God. It says it very clearly in Doctrines and Covenants, chapter 130. It actually says, this is one of their standard works, one of their inspired scriptures, where Joseph Smith is talking. He says, God himself was once as we are now. I mean, that's just what they believe and is an exalted man. So God at one point was an exalted man. He's a man, he became exalted, now he's God. That means God wasn't always God, that he changed. He says, you imagine that God was God from all eternity? I will refute this idea and take away the veil. He says, he was once a man like us. Like us, that's what, he said. That's what Joseph Smith says about God. That we are the only people, the, the worshipers of the God of the Bible, that can stand and say, you know what? Everything is insane right now, but I trust in my God that he is unchanging, that he never moves, that he never fluctuates, that he never grows, and that he's not like me. Anything in your life that you can say, you know what, here's something in my life that I trust and have reliance on, it's not as good as God is. We think like a man. We attribute things to a man. You might have a really good mom or a really good dad in your life, someone who's been faithful to you or a partner or a coworker, or a spouse. You say they've always been faithful, but have they really always been the same person? Have they always been the same? No, they're not. And God wants us to know that. He says things like this in Numbers 23. God is not a man. Oh, that clarifies the Mormon doctrine here. That he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Whatever God says, He's going to do. He is not like us. He is above us, and He remains stable and sure and steadfast, and He doesn't change. And this affects every attribute of His, if you think about it. Think about God's being. We said, okay, He exists, and since He's unchangeable, He will always be. We think about God in His justice. We think, if God says that He is going to reward the righteous for their deeds when they're found in Christ and they honor Him, and He's going to punish the wicked, we should not be confused about that. His justice is sure. He is unchanging in his justice and his just rewards and his just punishments. We see the chaos of the world and we're thinking, God, where are you? Why haven't you shown up? Why haven't you dealt with this? We just got to remember, he is unchanging in his justice. He will fulfill it. He will do it. He is not going to change. He's not going to falter. He's not going to give up. He's going to do it. Think about his love for us, his grace towards us, his compassion towards us. He is unchanging in those things. Unchanging, unwavering, so that when he says he's going to carry us to the end and provide us glorified bodies and a position in his kingdom, which is going to happen, we have this confident assurance in it that should be in our own hearts surpassing the chaos of our world where we just look around and say, I know how this ends, I know where this is going, and I know my God who is going to bring it about. I know that he cannot be moved. He will not change. He will not falter. He will not waver. He is going to bring it about. I can trust it. I can rely on it. And if I look at him and keep my eyes on him, instead of on all the problems, and I'm not deceived in my own mind when I see things going on that's crazy, I'm going to be stable and steadfast in the midst of all this. God's not subject to change. He doesn't grow. He doesn't learn via experience. He doesn't get confused when things are going on in this world that seem crazy to us. He is like a rock in the midst of a turbulent sea, and our goal is just to put our feet on that rock, just to get there and to latch on and to ride it out with him, knowing that he's not going to move. He's not going to be battered by the waves. It's going to stay there. He's not going to crumble. He's our refuge and our fortress in times of need. That's where we go to. We need to be people that trust in the midst of all this craziness that God is faithful, that he's good, and that he's never going to change his ways. Uh, I've told you guys before, and and if you know me well, you know this as as well, but uh, I I spent like 15 years living up in the mountains. uh, 15, 17 years, something like that, and I, I think it's confused you um, because you guys think I'm tougher than I am. So whenever, whenever it's cold outside and you, like, see me on the patio or you talk to me, I have, like, you guys come up, and if this is you, it's okay. I'm just saying, like, you're confused, okay? Um, you walk up and you say, well, you should be used to this. I got re to Orange County about two months after I got down here. There's not an ounce of toughness left in me about the weather. And so just like all of you whiners and complainers, um, when it's cloudy or rainy or cold or slightly under 70 degrees, uh, I start to be like shaking, you know, I'm cold, I can't handle it. And I'm just like, when is it going to be sunny again? Because it's like, if it's not 72 degrees and sunny with a slight breeze, I'm upset, okay? And and, and I should know, I should know living here, as long as I've lived in Orange County, like it's not going to last long when it's cold. And so... It would be foolish of me if you see me out on the patio and it's cold outside or it's rainy outside or the wind is blowing for me to be running around like I've lost it and saying to everyone, the sun is gone. It's never coming out again. It's not in the sky. I don't see it. I don't know how the beams will break through the clouds. I think it's going to rain forever. I'm going to be wet for all time. I'm never going to be warm again. You would, you would pull me, slap me across my face, and say, get a hang of yourself, Pastor Doug. It's going to be 72 and sunny tomorrow. Like it, it's going to be okay. The, the sun is still in the sky. Don't, don't, don't be confused because it's cloudy for a day or two. It's still there. It's still shining. It's still powerful. It's still bright. It's still there just because your perception of it right now is that it's not what you want not what you like, not what you're used to, not what you're comfortable with, that it's not going to go well, that, that it's over, it's ended. It doesn't matter how dark the clouds of moral decay get in our society or how, how foggy and unclear the economy becomes or our system of government or whatever it would be. It, it, if it gets dark and rainy and wet out there, we shouldn't be people running around saying, where is God? And why is he not acting? And why is he not moving? And why is he not working? We need to have the confidence that he is there, and he is not moved, and he will never move. And he is faithful to fulfill his promises, and we can trust, rely, anticipate his goodness, his grace, his mercy in our lives, his faithfulness, his protection, his provision. That doesn't mean it will always go well or that everything will be perfect in our lives, but we can trust in Romans eight twenty eight that even the bad things, he's going to work out for good. All things are gonna work out for good for those who love him. And ultimately, he is gonna bring about a kingdom and make us a people that reign and rule with him on this earth and submit all authorities and all rulers to himself. And so even when things just feel, ah, don't know what's gonna happen tomorrow, We've got to have that confidence in our God, in what he's going to do and who he has been and what he has said because he is good and because he is unchanging. So No matter how dark things get or how hard things get in your life, how miserable you feel in these conditions and how much it affects you, don't ever be moved from our thinking of who God is, that he's good to us, and he's never going to change from that position. He's going to continue to work out all things for good in our lives. Let's find our stability in these uncertain times in that God and in his goodness and in his faithfulness. Let's pray. God, we need your help in this area because of our own tendency in our own flesh and our own spirit and our own sin, God, to shift our thinking. When things get hard around us, God, we are prone to wander from you, to forget about your faithfulness in the past and to forget the promises of your faithfulness in the future. God, help us to not be that way. Help us to not grow weary or faint-hearted or discouraged, to remain a, a sense of holy and godly optimism, knowing not that everything will be perfect or that everything will go exactly the way we want it to, but that everything will go exactly the way you want it to that everything will work out for good for us and that you are going to accomplish your plans and purposes and God that we can trust in you that even when things seem unstable God we know that you are unmoved God help us even this week to take an inventory of the good things in our life to not only thank you for them but even to anticipate continued good things from your hand because you're the giver of every good and perfect gift God thank you for our salvation thank you for redeeming us from the curse of our sin and giving us a relationship with you that we cannot just be people that look at you as an adversary or an enemy, but now we're children, children who you do not want to withhold your good hand from, you want to provide for. And we know that you love us. We know that you care for us. And God, help us to be faithful and good stewards of your grace and your goodness and your provision in our life. God, help us to trust you more today because of this passage, because of these truths. In Jesus' name, amen.